let me remind you that we are in Lent, and uh, we're continuing on in that series this morning. And as we do, um, it appears that there's like a, a really big halo behind me, but perhaps that will just uh, be what it is for the day. So, hey, as we continue on in Lent, I'm really excited that uh, you're joining us this morning. Um, let me uh, kind of just recap where we've been. Um, we've been in the last, this is our final temptation of Jesus, but two weeks ago, Stephen started us off and he talked about the sustenance, the true sustenance that Jesus would find. Would he find it in obeying his father and being a son that would obey his father? Or would it come in um, providing for himself through food? And then last week we talked about um, not just the practical, but the powerful. And so as we looked at that, what we talked about was, would we, fu- would we find that God is sufficient for our worship, and therefore finding our sufficiency in God alone? Um, I don't know about you, but this whole thing is starting to have a, a, a bit of an impact on my soul in ways that sneak up on me. Like this week, um, I lost it on two of the three of my children. I'm not going to tell you which ones, but I lost it. And so um, Melissa just looked at me and goes, I think it's time for you to go take a drive. And so I went and took that drive, and um, I found myself on the way to the softball fields that we normally would be at, uh, like we would be living there in the springtime. Um, And on the way there, there is the Morton Cemetery. And so I pulled into the Morton Cemetery, and um, there's a friend of ours that's buried there. And so I went and visited her grave, but um, also started to just kind of look around and take some time to remember and reflect on what's important. It's not important that my kids follow my instruction or that I can coach uh, really well during this time for Ellie or Moses. That was the thing that uh, drove me nuts during that time. And so I just needed some perspective and and I got it and I needed some patience. And I went to the cemetery to find that. Um, Did you know that Jane Long, the mother of Texas, is buried right, um, right around the corner from us? But not only that, but so is M.B. Lamar, the second president of the Republic of Texas, And you can see that their graves are marked out special um, in the Morton Cemetery. Their their headstones are large, and there are two Texas flags that are flying by their headstones. There's some significance there, and it had me thinking about this morning as I knew what I was going to be preaching on, about where am I finding my significance. Um, Going into the cemetery was where I started to get some perspective, and as I did, um, I also found out that there was a church planter, church pastor um, that was in Tacoma, Washington that committed suicide, took his own life in November. And I read his obituary. This is my week. I don't know what your week's been like, but I read his obituary this week. And it said that he longed, he longed for significance. Um, he sought to prove his worth through his military accomplishments. He longed for love and acceptance and he sought to find it through the various relationships that he had built. Um, like, I don't know about you, but that, that snuck up on me a little bit this week because I, I find that I find or that I'm lo- longing for significance in similar measures, not through military conquest, but certainly could have if that was my life, but it wasn't. But certainly longing for significance and love and acceptance through other relationships that I'm building on the earth. And then the last part of his obituary that I wanted to share, it says, but he... Uh, But what he was really longing for all along was the love of his heavenly father. You see, Jesus, as he went out into the desert, had that love in fullness by his father as the son. And so the question comes here today is where are we going to find our significance? Where are we going to find the thing that makes us us? We've 
talked about it in different terms four weeks ago when we were still at Frost when we talked about identity. Where are we going to find our identity? Where are we going to find our significance? Will it be in being right? Will it be in being loved, in being respected, in being safe during these times? Will it be in being different, like wholly unique from everyone else? Will it be on being the in crowd or perhaps being funny? Make no mistake that corona, the coronavirus is suppressing a lot of this in us because we're cut away from a lot of the relationships that we would normally be maintaining. Make no mistake, this stuff is bubbling below the surface that if we don't um, yield to the Spirit's surgery in our hearts and in our souls during this time of being in the wilderness with Jesus, it will rear its ugly head even during this time as I found this last week. You see, here's what I know through these temptations um, that Jesus went through, and, and it kind of signifies for all of us that if he cannot get you to find your significance or your identity through providing for yourself, through proving yourself and building a kingdom like last week, he will try to get us to protect ourselves by manipulating God and his word. See, this is one of those passages and one of those sermons where I wish I could see you I wish I could see your eyes as I'm preaching to you instead of just looking at the lens of a camera because this is one of those passages that's going to hurt a little bit. But I think that if we can yield to the Spirit, um, He will produce in us something new that maybe we didn't uh, anticipate as we woke up this morning. So let me read the passage that we've been in for the last several weeks. It's Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll dig in together. Here's what the Word of God says from Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, temptation one, if you are the Son of God, if you really are who God says you are, command this stone to become bread. Provide for yourself. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up, second temptation, what we talked about last week. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been given, for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will just worship me. Hey, no big deal. Just worship Satan. If you will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written for the second time, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And now finally, the last temptation as we continue on here this morning. And he took him to Jerusalem and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, if you are the son of God, going back again to his identity, if you are the son of God, through was written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on the other hand, and, and, and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him a third time saying, it is written or it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then in verse 13, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's walk through this a bit because when we look at this passage, we look at 9 through 13, we're going to start to understand that the first two temptations we can kind of get. 
I kind of understand providing for yourself um, at least a bread if you're hungry. We get that. Um, the second temptation, some of us can get that there's power in kingdoms. There's authority there. There's control. There's provision through the building up of your own kingdom. The third one of self-harm, we don't quite understand, um, or at least many of us don't quite understand. And so we have to understand that this is really about self-harm. Although it is interesting that Satan says, throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. See, Satan wasn't going to push Jesus off. Instead, he was going to convince him to self-harm. Because if Satan would have pushed him, surely the angels would have been able to rescue him from that death. But if he harms himself, there's a testing there that he was inviting and really tempting Jesus to do. It was this, that he would really be, that he would... Uh, Test and tempt the Lord to serve, uh, uh, the, test and tempt the Father to serve the Son instead of the Son serving the Father. And so we get to this, but that's not the point, right? That is a point. The point really is that if you can imagine yourself going into the temple in Jerusalem, the priests have blown their trumpets. And now thousands of people are coming into the temple to give their daily sacrifice of grain offerings, of freewill offerings, of, of bull and goat, and whatever it may have been appropriate. And it was there that, um, that, that Jesus is being brought up onto the temple with everyone coming in to give their sacrifice. And Satan says, throw yourself off. Just go ahead and just, 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 just shortcut yourself to significance because after all, there's only one place where everyone is coming to give sacrifice. It is a place where God has promised his presence there at the temple. So it's no wonder that Satan brings Jesus to the place where God provides promise, where God provides presence, where God provides reconciliation between sinner and himself. See, thousands would have been there offering their worship to God, and Satan brings him to the top to look down upon these worshipers coming in, and he just says this, hey, show them who you are. If you're the son of God, then show them that you're the favored one. Show them that you're the Messiah. I mean, you're the Messiah, aren't you, Jesus? You're the one that was promised to come. Let's just skip all these theatrics that you're going to have to go through. Let's, let's take a shortcut to your significance. Let's skip the pain. Let's skip the death. And let's just take this promise right here that God would protect you. And let's put it into practice. What do you say, Jesus? And of course, Jesus wasn't having it because he knew his motives, but it was a shortcut to significance. Now, what I'm about to say right now is the irony of all ironies, because we are paying attention and tuning in through social media. And so who knew that Mark Zuckerberg would be um, the medium through which the gospel would be proclaimed in all the earth. But here we are on YouTube and on Facebook, and the gospel's going out in new ways. But the social media is this place where we can find a shortcut to significance. We don't usually show our worst self on social media. We, we have to become an influencer. And in order to do that, you show your best self. You show your most fit self. You show your most spiritual self, your most organized self, whatever it may be. But whether it be social media or through regular work or through Zoom meetings or, or having it all together, whatever it is that we're projecting to the world, you see, finding our significance in anything other than being found in Christ is a trap. Finding our significance in anything besides being found in Christ 
is a trap. And this is the thing that Satan's putting before him, right? This isn't a, a temptation about social media for us. No, it is about finding your significance in God. First, it was where we're going to trust God for our give us um, sustenance through life? Are we going to trust God for sufficiency? And now are we going to trust God for our significance? And then what will we do with our What will we do with that relationship? You see, for Jesus in verse 12, he says, man, I'm going to trust in God's promises through his word. When we find significance in something other than being found in Christ, what creeps up? What creeps up in our hearts and then flows out of our mouths, our hearts, and our hands? What flows out of us when we find significance in anything else but pride and entitlement? And so I don't know about you, but like this coronavirus thing, like somebody asked me this week, hey, is this coronavirus going to affect your, your, your sabbatical? I was supposed to go on sabbatical this summer, take 12 weeks to um, just like recalibrate, to, re- to rest, and then reconnect with everybody. And that was a process that we were looking forward to as a family, and I'm sure as somewhat as a church. Um, and that's going to change significantly. And, and I remember the first things that were going through my mind for coronavirus wasn't, are we going to get sick? Wasn't, um, oh, I need to pray for China. Um, it was, how does this affect me? Right? And I think we all probably went there first. Like, how is this going to affect my bank account? How is this going to affect the security that I've uh, put together in this world? How is this going to affect the bottom line of life? For me, it was sabbatical. And so, like, how is this going to affect a trip or two that we have planned forward to? And there, were t- there was a time in that whole process where it would have been really easy for me to go to God and be like, hey, don't you owe me after 12 years of really uninterrupted uh, service to the kingdom and to the church. Like, don't you owe me a good sabbatical time? I mean, of all the times that you could have put coronavirus on the earth, the year that we've set this course for sabbatical, we're gonna do that this year? See, what happens when we find our significance in anything besides the sovereign and good Lord, we become entitled to God. And so all of a sudden, what was coming out of me in my prayer time very easily was, and had to be very easily corrected, uh, was this entitlement. Lord, I, I've, I've put in work here. I've put in time. Will you reward me? And I thought you were going to reward me. And so this question comes up, right? Why do we worship God? Why do we want to do good for him? Why do we lead? Why do we suffer? Why do we continue to trust the promises that God has laid out for us? There's nothing, by the way, wrong with receiving God's blessings. What's wrong with receiving God's blessings is when we become entitled to them or we think that we're entitled to them. See, that's the thing that Satan was tempting Jesus in right now. And at the pinnacle of the temple, Satan was tempting him, you're entitled to be safe. You're entitled to a blessing of security and significance. There's a shortcut here that I'm offering you. You are the son of God. You're entitled to these things. Just take it in this way. But it's a dangerous thing to approach God in this manner as if he is indebted to us, as if he somehow owes us due to our obedience or our dependence or our prayer on him. You see, Satan wanted to lure Jesus to find significance in taking the shortcuts to significance. He, 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 would, he would not, though, test his father or take advantage of his privilege of relationships, but instead he would put his trust in his father's character and in his word. You see, 
That's the core of this temptation. It's significance, but it's also where we're going to find that significance. And I'll tell you for us, this is one or two levels deep here now in this temptation that Satan is putting before Jesus. But I want to put it before us as something that we need to really put at the core of our fight. The core of our fight is interpretation of Scripture. You see, Satan tempts Jesus through Scripture. He says, look, isn't it written in Psalm 91? Isn't it written, Jesus, that you're going to be protected and you're going to be cared for? And so he tempts Jesus, not this time with provision, not this time with power, but with promise. He tempts him with promise from God, his Father. You see, the core fight for most of us as our spiritual formation starts to grow over time is about really what we believe about God and his word. And this is the question that's put before us this morning. Whose interpretation of scripture are you going to believe? Whose interpretation of scripture are you going to trust? Are you gonna trust in Satan's interpretation of scripture? Or are you gonna trust in God's interpretation of Scripture. How do we figure that whole thing out? I want to give us some steps and then some tools because I want us to understand here that Satan's temptation of Jesus was based on Scripture. You see, he still knew that the authority to, to draw upon was Scripture itself. He knew 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which say this, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. I'm going to go there. It says this, right? He, Satan knew that all Scripture was breathed out by God. He knew. He knows that. He knows that our greatest security is found in God's Word. And so he also knows, just like he knew with Adam and Eve, hey, don't eat of that tree. Did God really say don't eat? Did God really say that you're going to die? And he starts to put into question into our hearts our doubts about the, the security that we can find in the Scripture. See, it says that this is the final authority in all of life. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's sourced in God. Reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that the man or woman of God may be competent, fully equipped for every good work. You see, if we live by any authority besides Scripture, we're in danger of misinterpreting our lives and misapplying our loves our loves towards one another, our loves towards work, our love towards, towards God himself. And sister, at some point, you and I are going to be challenged about what we believe about who God is. And you know where the greatest challenge is gonna come from? The greatest challenge is going to come from scripture. We're gonna be challenged about who God is, not from anything else, but from scripture. You see, Satan knew that, and he put promises before Jesus to tempt him to testing his father's promises. Our greatest challenges will come from Scripture. And so I have a question. What do you do when you disagree with how God does things? What do you do? Because I think that's put before us during corona time. Like, we don't agree with this timing. We don't agree with how this is affecting us. I mean, just this morning, we had one of our kids breaking down because they couldn't see their friends, and they just, they, they're just tired of probably being around me, right? It's going to start affecting us in ways that we're not quite prepared for mentally, 
spiritually. And so what do we do when God does things, runs the world, the world or our world, in ways that we just disagree with? We're either going to rebel and we're going to run full force into rebellion or sometime in that whole process we're going to repent and we're going to change our mind about what we think we need and we're going to lay what we think we need at the foot of Jesus and say, you know what I need. You know exactly what I need for this time in this place. When pain and disappointment overwhelms you, whose interpretation will you trust? There's this song that we've been singing um, as a family, and it's probably not a worship song, but it is by a guy by the name of Tyson Motzenbacher, um, which is a name that I wish I had. Tyson Motzenbacher, and it's called Sunday Morning. And one of the lyrics of, of the song talks about you can only, um, like for what's being sold on Sunday morning, you can only come down from that high so often. But God is more than a feeling, and that's what he's offering on Sunday morning. You see, the thing that I'm cautioning us against is to over-apply promises from God for every moment and in every uh, instance because there's only so many times you can recover from that kind of disappointment in life. When we claim too much from God in this point, in this time, and in this place, and don't look to Jesus as our the, the, the final resting place for every promise that God has made. When we don't look to eternity for the final place and the final person that we will finally become, and we start to try and misapply all the promises of, God's, of, of, of God in this place and in this time for ourselves, man, that is a disappointment, friends, that we can only recover from so many times. So who do we trust? How do we figure out who's saying what? Because Satan is quoting from Psalm 91. Satan is quoting from Scripture. He has a habit of doing that for us. Who do we trust in all this if we're trying to figure that out? And then how do we figure out who to trust? Let me give you some tools in all this. First and foremost, read the broader context. You and I both have, have heard about Psalm 91 during this corona time. You've probably been invited to a Psalm 91 group like I have on Facebook. There's nothing wrong with praying through and asking God to protect us as he has done in the past through Psalm 91. I want to affirm that in anybody that's been doing that. Praise the Lord. But I want you to read the context. Satan is quoting Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, right? If we were to go back to Psalm 91, you would see it right here in verse 11 and 12. And he says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. That's what he's saying right there in verse 10 of Luke 4. Verse 12, you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You know what Satan doesn't quote? Just conveniently cherry-picking here or there out of the Scriptures. You know what he doesn't quote? Verse 13. Because this is what the Bible says in verse 13, which Jesus actually quotes in Luke 10. Look at verse 13 of Psalm 91. You will tread on the lion and on the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Do you not think that Jesus knew Psalm 91 verse 13? Of course he did. But it wasn't through protecting himself by testing the Father that he was going to trample on the serpent. No, it was by resisting that desire for self-fulfillment of a shortcut of significance that he would trample on the serpent. In Luke 10, and he sends out his disciples, he actually references Psalm 91, 13, when he says, when I've given you power 
over the serpent. It's a fascinating reality. We've got to read the context of any promise given in Scripture, of anything given in Scripture, understanding that in any given context and with any given promise, there are limits which we must also apply to us. Psalm 91 was either written by David or Moses. We don't know which one. History hasn't given us uh, insight into either Psalm, uh, either David or Moses writing Psalm 91. What we do know is that there was a point in both of their lives, in both Moses and in David, where the protection of Psalm 91 was no longer their experience. What we do know is that in Psalm 91, it, 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 there's a promise there for protection, but we also know is that David died at some point. We also know that Moses died at some point. And the promises of Psalm 91 were limited in their deaths. That at some point, there were limits around that promise because they were not ultimately found in the person of Jesus. So my plea for you, Grove, my plea for you, Christian, whoever is dialing in, we must read context, we must understand there are limits there, and we must read carefully. If it's not Psalm 91 that we may over-apply to our time and our place and our heart, which will lead to disappointment. If it's not Psalm 91, it could be Isaiah 53, right? I know that I'm, I'm kind of, I, I, I'm, I'm treading on, 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 I don't know what the saying is, but what's the saying? <laughs> on thin ice. Thank you, Chris. I know I'm treading on thin ice, right? But like Isaiah 53, he says, by his wounds we are healed. We're healed, not physically there, but spiritually, because the sickness that we have is iniquities. It's not any, it's not infirmities, it's iniquities. It's sin. He is healing our sins by his wounds and by his stripes. Many of us claim that and over-apply the promise there to physical healing, but that's not at all what God is saying. He's saying that the ultimate healing for your soul is taking place through these promises. I want us to understand that because there's a disappointment, again, that can come from over-applying the Scriptures, and that's exactly what Satan wanted Jesus to do. Just over-apply this promise for you, Jesus. God will take care of you. And Jesus responds in verse 12 by saying, It is also written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. You see, we're all prone to read the Scriptures. at the center of the scriptures and then wrapping scripture around our preference or our personality or whatever it may be. And what God is calling us and inviting us into is to put himself in the middle and then put our preferences and our experiences and our desires around what he, who he truly is. So we can guard against um, this dangerous thing that's put before us as a temptation to Jesus. How to how do we guard against that? There are four things that we can do to guard against this. Number one, and submit your, your, the way you're reading the scriptures to a friend. If you've got a friend that will, will disagree with you, that maybe invite you into a different understanding of what you understand those scriptures to be, um, not just people that agree with you. Like, we get it. Um, but that can become an echo chamber where we're only going, don't you think the same thing that I do? And they go, of course I do. Find a friend that will commit to your good. Um, and, 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 if, and if that falls short, and it will, let me invite you to the second step, and that is submit your ideas. Submit what you're thinking about God to your local church. 
You have local pastors and elders and deacons and leaders that are committed to your good. They are committed to making sure that Christ is formed in you. We just saw that in, in Galatians, right? When we went through the book of Galatians, Paul said that he, he was in the pains of childbirth until Christ was formed into the church at Galatia. Submit this, not to a friend, not just to a friend, but to the local church. As you submit it to the local church and you go, man, I just don't know. I, I, I got some other thoughts about that. Submit it to tr church tradition. There are volumes, there are millions of pages that have been written about the things that you're thinking when you read Isaiah 53, when you read Psalm 91, when you read Luke 4, John 3, and the rest of Scripture. Surely, surely we should submit ourselves to church tradition. There are so many resources that we can draw upon, millions of pages over thousands of years, and literally tens of thousands of authors and scholars that have put down for us volumes of work that we can rely on. And then finally, finally, my plea with you, friends, is to not just submit to a friend, a local church, church traditions over thousands of years, but ultimately to submit to God. Submit to him. You cannot do any of this. You cannot find safety and security in the scriptures without submitting yourself to its authority, just like Jesus did. To submit to him. That's the whole point in all this. And I do want you to just kind of underscore the first word in all those four steps were submit. Another word for submission is to put your trust. So where will you find trust? In your own interpretation, in your own ideas, or will we find trust in the ideas of a friend, in the ideas of your local church, of the church tradition, and ultimately in the ideas of God himself through the scriptures. You see, here's what we know. In verse 13, you see the temptations didn't end for Jesus. These temptations came to an end in the desolate place, in the desert. And just as we're wrapping up Lent in the next week with Palm Sunday next week, yes, we're only two Sundays away from Easter, just as we're entering, entering into the kind of final destination of our desolate place, of our wilderness journey. So Jesus was finding his end. And what happens in verse 13? It says, And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan is always looking for an opportunity to bring Jesus and therefore us to temptation. And I would just ask, what is your most vulnerable time? When you feel like you may not, may not have enough X, when you feel like you don't have enough toilet paper or hand sanitizer, you don't feel like you have enough money, time, patience, energy, when you feel like you don't have enough something, when you feel like you may not work hard enough, is that when you're most vulnerable? When you're most tempted? When you feel like you're disappointing someone? Or better yet, when someone else has disappointed you. I know that's oftentimes when I find myself to be most vulnerable. When I feel like I've put the work in and God either lets me down or someone else I feel like is letting me down. And all of a sudden I get tempted to explode or to, to, to be short or, or, or worse. Just self-isolate, right? In the worst possible way. When you're tired and you're alone, is that when you're most tempted? When God has called you to do something for him and with him? Is that when you're most tempted to just shirk off significance and identity? Or when you're on the right track and Satan comes against you and you know 
You should be going in that way. It just makes it hard. Is that when you're most tempted? Satan is always looking for an opportunity for you, for, for us to make it feel like God does not care about us, to make it feel like he's forgotten us, or worse yet, in this instance, like we're invincible. Like, like the matters of this world don't apply to us. Like the, the rules and the law of, these, of, of the way that God created everything just simply don't apply to us. See, in all these cases, the truth of the scriptures will tell us over and over again. And so I just want to end by kind of rapid fire a few promises for us out of four passages, right? John 20, John 20, verse 19, to the frightened disciples in, in the upper room, what does he say? Peace be with you. Yeah, peace be with you. you you're anxious. You, you don't know what to do next. You're tired. You, don't, you haven't slept in a few days. Peace. Peace be with you. The last part of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 20, really just verse 20. He says, man, I want you to go do all these things. All authority in heaven has been given to me. I want you to go make disciples, go baptize them, go teach them. And then he says, and behold, take notice. See this. Notice this. I am with you always to the end of the age. If you feel like your power is running out, if you feel like you just don't have the strength to get through whatever temptation and let me encourage you with 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. When Jesus said to Paul, when he pled with God to take away this thorn in the flesh, and he, and he pleads with him, and what did Jesus say to him? No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Don't try to be strong, Paul. Don't try to get this thing, get rid of you. No, instead, my power is being made perfect in you through this trial and this weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then finally, out of 1 Peter 5, I want you to hear God's heart for us during these trying times. I want you to hear God's heart for us to continue to trust him for significance, for sufficiency, for sustenance, for all that we may need in all of life. 1 Peter says this, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5. Humble yourselves. See there? Submit to the Lord. Humble yourselves. Don't act in pride or entitlement. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. It is mighty. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Therefore, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He hasn't left us. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't forgotten about us. And we're not invincible. No, instead, we're called to trust that at the right time, he may exalt. And therefore, in the meantime, we may then throw all of our anxieties on Jesus because, it, because he has a deep reservoir of care and of power in these times. Jesus didn't defeat, just defeat Satan on the cross, but in the desert. He secured his identity in his Father, and he won for us an identity which is deeply rooted in God's declaration to him. And just like in Luke 3, just like in Matthew 3, when God says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, let that also echo in our hearts for us that we are his beloved sons. We are his beloved daughters with whom he is well pleased. 
So may we believe in that way. May we relate with God and with our neighbor in that way. And we, may we purpose all of our lives out of that identity that he has placed upon us. Let me pray for us. And Chris is gonna come back and lead us in a song. And then I'll come back with some reminders for us. Lord, we love you. We're grateful that you have uh, put a, a significance in us. A significance not to live for the pleasures or the power that can be found in this world, but instead, Lord, for the pleasure and the joy that we find in your son, Jesus. May we be um, sons and daughters that rest in your promises. May we be sons and daughters that don't over-apply the promises of Scripture, but that we realize um, that not at all times will those things actually be true in life, unless they find their fulfillment in Jesus. So may we then put all of our trust, put all of our hope, put all of our faith in the person of Jesus. He's the only one that has um, conquered the grave. He's the only one that has conquered and survived these mighty temptations of Jesus in the desolate place. And so whatever wilderness we're in, yes, from people, yes, um, that there's uh, a wilderness there that, that you've called us into, Lord, would we submit to you? Would we humble ourselves to whatever surgery you want to perform on our hearts? By the power of the Spirit, may we, re may we be renewed as we repent of who we thought you were, as we repent of who we thought we were, and as we believe in the good news of the kingdom. That you have come to be with your people. That you have died to make us your people that you have risen from the grave to empower your people and that you have filled us with the Spirit that you may counsel your people. What is constant in all that is that we're yours. May we live like it and love like it. We love you in Jesus' name, amen.